Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hey, everyone. Thanks entirely to listeners like you who have decided to generously support the show on Patreon. Indoctrination has been going for over five years now, releasing a new episode every week, plus new bonus episodes for our Patreon supporters twice a month. In those almost six years, a supportive community of like-minded shows has grown around us. We are so grateful to see the numerous other podcasters doing really great work in the cult education and recovery space. And whenever we take notice of these shows, I like to reach out and collaborate, which, as some of you know, has led to some crossover episodes with shows like The Influence Continuum with Steve Hassan, A Little Bit Culty with Sarah and Nippy, as well as one we'd like to highlight today. I was a teenage fundamentalist with Brian and Troy. If you have not already done so, please make sure to check out their interview with me as well as their episode on indoctrination. Brian and Troy have developed a great community of people deconstructing their experiences in high-control religious groups, but I'll let them describe the show in their own words. G'day, I'm Troy. And I'm Brian. And we're the hosts of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, an ex-evangelical podcast. We used to be loyal members and leaders in Australian Christian megachurches, but we're not anymore. I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist is an honest and hilarious peek behind the curtain at the weird, the worrying, and sometimes traumatic world of evangelicals and Pentecostals. We share our stories, we interview prominent guests in the global ex-evangelical space, and provide a platform for others to tell their stories about their time in evangelicalism and their journey out. Shortlisted at the recent Australian Podcast Awards, I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist gives you a unique global perspective into one of the fastest growing religions in the world from the people who actually lived it. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and IWasAteenageFundamentalist.com. So thanks again to Brian and Troy for the work they do. And for today, our guest is Mark Tory. Mark and I have known each other a long time and we commiserate and talk and we have a lot of shared views on things. So it was totally my pleasure to speak with him. Mark discovered Scientology while on vacation in Los Angeles just a month after graduating college in May of 2005. Two years later, he joined the staff at the Church of Scientology in Berlin, Germany. While in Berlin, Mark worked for Scientology for over 90 hours a week, earning very little money, if any. He left Berlin in February 2008 when he was transferred to Scientology in San Francisco, where he worked until May of 2008. Since leaving Scientology, Mark has been regularly sharing about his experience online in the hopes that his story can help young people, especially recent college graduates, to be more aware of predatory organizations like Scientology. He has continued to pursue his education and is currently enrolled in a master's program in Budapest, Hungary, where he now resides. Mark is a historian focusing on nationalism, language, and Jewish culture in late modern Europe. Mark's story is so interesting that we invited him back 
to continue the conversation for a bonus episode, which will air this Friday exclusively for our Patreon supporters. So if you enjoy this conversation and want to hear more from Mark, just follow the link in our show notes and you can become a supporter for as little as $5 per month. You'll then gain access to his second interview as well. And the bonus episode with Mark is great. We go into some really interesting places to talk about really interesting things. And so here is my first conversation with Mark now. I am very happy to have Mark with me today. You know, we speak back and forth on social media and on, you know, email, and we haven't had a chance to have a conversation like this, which is really interesting because I've had a sense of your story, but I realized it wasn't from you. I didn't talk to you. So there's so much more to discuss. And I'm so glad that you reached out for this so that you could share more. And I would love for you to just take a moment and introduce yourself, and then we'll start talking. Of course. Uh, my name is Mark Turi. Um, I'm originally from Toronto, Canada. That's where I was born and raised. However, I've been living in Budapest, Hungary since um, late September 2021. And I did about a year of trying to learn the language, uh, Hungarian, and now I'm in a master's program. I actually discovered Scientology. That's sort of the, the crux of, uh, of my story. Shortly after graduating from community college, which was in Toronto, Canada. Uh, However, I discovered Scientology in May of 2005 when I was in Los Angeles, when I was on vacation. And I ended up getting what's called body routed into uh, what is referred to as the L. Ron Hubbard Life Exhibition, which is in Hollywood. And shortly after that, after I left my vacation, I became a very strong, dedicated member of the Church of Scientology for three years including the final year that I was in Scientology from May of 2007 until May of 2008 when I was a staff member. Part of that, I was in Berlin, Germany, working for the church, and the other small uh, small part of that for about uh, two and a half months, I was actually in Northern California, in San Francisco. And so um, I have spoken out, of course. Um, first time I ever spoke out was in February um, I believe it was January, February of 2009 in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, I've done interviews here and there, but the last year, the last two, there's very thankfully been a lot more people speaking out. And so I've done a lot more interviews and podcasts since then. And because uh, I've known Rachel for quite quite a few years, and uh, I do remember visiting your office a number of years ago in Los Angeles in the Valley. It was just great to yeah, be able to connect this way because as I'm getting older, I turned 40 this year. A lot of people have told me I have a lot of interesting insight into how I got in, why I got out, and I would just love to share that. Yeah, I'm just, again, very thankful that I'm, that I'm here. Mm, yeah, and it's so nice. And it feels like it was a long time ago when we met in person. I still have that office. And uh, I'm there part of the time with people who want to see me in person. It's been an interesting place. I've worked with a lot of former Scientologists there and actually some people who uh, who are out but are not out, you know, in any kind of public way and are very nervous that they've been followed to my office and 
come in wearing dark sunglasses or take the stairs instead of the elevators so that they're not caught in the elevator with someone following them. And I guess, you know, for people who are not familiar with Scientology and how it works, that would normally sound paranoid. (laughs) But I know enough to know that's not being paranoid when you're dealing with Scientology. So it is nice to see you. And it's quite amazing to be able to talk to you now, you know, now that you're in a very different place in the world. And I'm curious also about life in Budapest. But I'm wondering just you know, you already mentioned a phrase that I think is going to get people's interest to talk about being body routed. That is such an interesting way of talking about having a person go in a certain direction, that a person then is their body in Scientology. Can you explain, let's just start with that, with sort of defining that term So people understand how differently Scientology feels about human beings. Yes. Uh, We're actually, when I was on staff, we would refer to people who were brand new into Scientology as raw meat. And basically, that's how they're referred to. So when you body route somebody in, it's it's a process of meeting someone on on the street that is in front of a Scientology organization or some kind of affiliated organization, such as this particular museum exhibit. And uh, what it really is, is introducing someone to uh, a staff member. And, you know, uh, to be perfectly honest, they pick the most attractive staff members to be body routed. And I know attractive is a subjective term, but in, in the eyes of Many people, they would pick the most attractive, a cultural standard of beauty. And uh, in my case, it was, you know, young women from uh, from the United States who are from California. And what they do is they ask you some very basic questions. So when I was body routed into the L. Ron Hubbard Life Exhibition, Scientology was not mentioned. They basically asked me if I wanted to see an exhibit that was about science fiction. And of course, I'm a huge fan of science fiction. I grew up watching Star Trek and Star Wars, Planet of the Apes, etc. I also had done research before I went to Los Angeles and knew that in Hollywood, there is an American, something called the American Television Museum, I think is the name of it. So I honestly thought I was in front of that place. And so it really wasn't until I was inside when Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard, there were these words and exhibits. And by the time I figured out where I was, I was already in the door, so to speak. I was already moving through the first exhibit or two. And of course, I'm Canadian. I don't want to be rude. I'm not going to leave this kind of thing. That's really it. I mean, um, Scientologists have an inherited belief that everybody wants and needs either Dianetics or Scientology. And the more people resist it, the more that comes from what's called the reactive mind. And people do a lot of deceptive recruiting. They do a lot of PR techniques to get people in. They make a lot of promises to get people in. And the where the place that I was at that time and where I was and how I was thinking at that time was fragile. I was vulnerable and I followed the person in kind of shut off my critical thinking and my instincts and kind of went with what they were showing me. And by the time I left an hour later, I was really, really interested in Scientology. The people seemed very confident and they seemed very friendly, very smiley. The body language was positive. So they gave a very good pitch and uh, that was very attractive at the time. It's also an interesting thing that 
you didn't know was Scientology until you were inside. So you just need to wonder, I think, why information is withheld. And if that also means that that's the way it's going to be, that's the way it's going to be in this organization, that they're only going to reveal things when they think you're in it or when it suits them or when they think it's a good time to share it. But, you know, I feel like it's inherently disrespectful from the beginning and, you know, deceptive from the beginning, but you just don't, you just don't know it. It's like the the personality test, the Oxford test that they have, that they named Oxford for no reason, because it's not connected to anything Oxford, but just to give it some legitimacy or sounding legitimate. It doesn't say Scientology on it when people are using this or being given this, this way of measuring them and what they need from the world and from Scientology. I think it's so interesting that here you also got involved through this other means, through finding it very interesting because of science fiction, et cetera, and then being warmly welcomed in a city that, you know, was far away from home, I'm sure felt very good too, right? And then you had kind of Insta community. Is that how it felt? For sure. I mean, one of the reasons I was in Los Angeles is because I had wanted to move to LA, which I did eventually in January of 2009 when I had left Scientology. But at the time, I really wanted to go to university in Los Angeles. I wanted to do my degree. And I was visiting campuses, of course, mainly the state schools, but it was still really exciting. It was my first time in California, my first time in Los Angeles. I had been watching movies and television shows my whole life. I could name how many TV shows and movies that are filmed, of course, in Los Angeles, especially during the 90s. It was always a city that felt very far away. So when I was there and I was going around and, you know, to Hollywood and seeing Paramount Studios, which is where they filmed Star Trek or, you know, Warner Brothers, which is where they filmed Friends. And so it was very exciting. And I really just wanted to get there. There was point A, there was point C, but I needed to go to point B. That's the avenue that Scientologists basically told me that they could help me get to that middle point so that I could, you know, move to Los Angeles. And it, it was something that, again, was just very attractive. They just gave a good pitch. I could be a staff member, whatever I wanted, you know, of course, because I was curious. I was asking a lot of questions. I had had this film experience and they just kept saying, yes, you can do X. Yes, you can do Y. Yes, you can do Z. Like I wanted to take acting classes. Okay. They had an acting school in Beverly Hills Playhouse. If I wanted to work as a PA, well, there's people who are Scientologists who are producers and they'll help you out. So it definitely seemed like there was an intermediary between, you know, this big city where millions of people come, a lot of people struggle. It's a very tough industry to break in, but Scientology is kind of the way in. And it's like this kind of secret way that not everyone really knows about. But if you play your cards right, you can definitely, you know, make it through their own procedures. And that's what I was sold on. And I sort of put university aside for a little while. And really my whole goals kind of changed once Scientology, once they pitched me, what could I do? And yes, of course, the community aspect was part of that because in film, sometimes um, people tend to be very individualistic and they tend to be very competitive. And sometimes getting a community involved, which I think maybe now might be different from when it was back then, because uh, I know things have changed. But certainly I was looking for that as well. I had always hard times making friends and, and so forth. So 
these unique people, these interesting people whom, you know, had similar interests. They were like-minded in, in many ways. It was also really interesting to meet young people my age who were acting, who were, you know, actors in Hollywood. That was really cool to me. That was very interesting, talking about their auditions and classes that they went to. So definitely it was, it was like, I couldn't believe it. Like, Hey, if I move out here, I can actually have a lot of friends and do some really creative and interesting things out here, which I couldn't maybe do in Toronto, even though we shoot a lot of movies in Toronto, it's definitely very different in Los Angeles, you know? So interesting. So I'm wondering also about the church aspect of it and what you did with that information when, you know, having not grown up in that kind of environment, how did they present that to you? Well, at the time, I was actually practicing Buddhism, and I come from a family where we have I have Christian family and Jewish family, and I've decided just as an adult to take the Jewish route. Some of my family are still Christians, and very liberal family I grew up in, very tolerant. I was very lucky in that way. Didn't very grow up terribly religious. They sort of left me alone when it was time to make the decisions on what religion I was going to follow, and I was around 2021, I discovered Buddhism. But Scientologists... Some For some people, there are certain cultural things and certain uh, things in Buddhism that don't really necessarily work for some people, just like other groups. So I was in a group that was not a part of my culture, and it was very difficult to break into that culture. And the practices were definitely tough. And they were, you know, it wasn't a, it was a Tibetan Buddhist group, very mainline, but that's a different culture different language and so forth. So Scientology sort of said, yes, we have, you know, the people were saying we have many young people that might be disillusioned by Buddhism, maybe that's the term. And so here's this sort of new form, like in lectures that I was listening to very, very, in the very beginning, Alron Hubbard was saying that he was Buddha and that this was a new form of Buddhism. And he was making critiques about Buddhism that it wasn't very practical because he would say, all you do is sit and meditate, and that's not really doing anything. But Scientology is really doing something. And for me, I kind of made connections because I had you know, my own experiences, very subjective, of course, but I had my own experiences on what I liked and what I didn't like. And again, Scientology promised that what I didn't like about those particular practices, Scientology would be more practical, more pragmatic. It would give me the tools that I needed. And if I wanted to go, quote unquote, enlightened, which in Scientology is called operating Thetan, it's it's a not exactly the same as Buddhist enlightenment, but it's 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 a concept that's kind of overlaps with it, that there was this way to do it and that there was this science behind it. I couldn't believe that some of the things that I wanted were ending up in Scientology and not in the other practices that I had experienced. And they certainly know how to push people's buttons in that direction, too. Very deceptively, but they do. Uh, again, I discovered Scientology in, in L.A., but I joined in Toronto. So I joined in the Toronto Org when I came home, which was May, May June of 2005. And then I took a job in my first time taking a job in Europe was in September of 2005. And I lived there to the summer of 2006. So I actually went to the, uh, when I was on course a couple times, three or four times, I went to the old Berlin org, which was uh, in an area called Mariendorfer Dam. This was before the ideal org and before I would join staff. Uh, then once I came home between the summer of 2000 
2006. And then May 2007, I was back into the Toronto org. And then during that last year, again, I spent most of that time in Berlin from uh, May of 2007 to February 2008. And then March to May 2008, I was in San Francisco. And after that, I left. So I guess I was online in three different orgs, maybe four different orgs at the time. But I never did. I never did courses uh, in Los Angeles. I just visited their churches, as they say. Their org buildings, I guess, is probably the the word they use. So, but yeah, never, never actually online. And I'm wondering if you can define for the listeners what an ideal org is, because it's something that they're going to hear about and they may have already heard about. Yeah. So this is a big thing with my story because, as I mentioned, there was a small org in Berlin that had been there for a long time. So before 2007, when I was there, small, small place. Then all of a sudden, at the end of 2006, they purchased a former department store. And really what a, what an ideal org is supposed to be is it's supposed to be a very large, very luxurious building that is very state-of-the-art. And the idea is that it could accommodate hundreds of people or at least dozens of people who want to take Scientology auditing and do Scientology in, in the course room, so Scientology courses. And so it, it really, what it means is that in a local city, normally those organizations are quite small. They might be in a strip mall. They might be in a small building. But about 20-ish years ago, maybe a little bit more now, maybe 21, 22 years ago, management decided to put this project where every org has to go ideal. And really what it means is to take an org that is very small give it a, a much bigger building, somewhere at least around 40,000, 50, 60,000 square feet, multiple levels that could accommodate a couple hundred people for a course room, 20 different auditing rooms. They would have these special places with uh, video uh, TVs where people could sit down and watch videos. It really is just giving it a new facade, really. And unfortunately, when there is a, a, a beautiful, nice facade on the outside, the inside doesn't change. So that's really a big part of the story, too, is that no, nobody's really interested in Scientology. So really what an ideal org is at the end of the day is it's just a new building with with new things, with, uh, with more luxurious things like sofas and computers and whatever. But really, the actual philosophy doesn't change. How people have um, interactions with one another don't change. The ethical standards, the, the coercion, the abuses, they don't change. It's really just making a small org into a bigger org, and that's called ideal org. So in the future, or at least the idea is, if you build this ideal org, it will be like an an island or a beacon that people in a particular city will come to sort of subconsciously and hundreds of people will be able to join and do Scientology. But if you look around the world, I mean, there's four ideal orgs in Northern California and there's few and people few and far between. And again, I also worked in the ideal org in San Francisco for two and a half months. And, you know, they've got a brand new building right across um, from this particular skyscraper it was an old bank and it's like a historical building but it doesn't really matter it's just an, an an outside cover to what's really going on inside which is a very damaged very abusive organization but essentially that's really what an ideal is just a big new shiny building 
Right. So now, uh, you know, people have had the experience, as have I, when I go into Scientology buildings. It's like they're all dressed up with nowhere to go. That's how it feels. Like these buildings are very fancy, state of the art, lots of tech, beautiful, sometimes stained glass, inlaid wood, gorgeousness. And it's almost totally empty, except for the staff that looks exhausted. And they're running because there's this need to move fast because you're, you know, on post and you have to show, you have to do a lot in one day. So there's a, there's this feeling of like efficiency, but I just saw people going from out one door into another door and then in a circle. And I think there's a, probably a lot of that feeling of just going in a circle without anyone else coming in uh, or leaving. But I just wonder, you know, for people in these cavernous fancy spaces what it feels like and if if it's hard to actually get momentum to care if people aren't coming in that's not an easy thing and the numbers have been dwindling so there are a lot more empty spaces so for the time that you were there i'm wondering what it was like for you and what what has left you with stories to tell and what are some of the stories of the things that really stand out from your years in scientology the number one thing for me that I, I keep going back to was my schedule, my actual schedule, because in the Berlin org, typically in most orgs on the planet, they have what's called a day and a foundation schedule. You can think of day as just a regular nine to six and foundation is evenings and weekends. Okay. However, um, the Berlin org decided to have additional schedules, including one called a full, full time schedule and how this uh, breaks down is that there are four shifts every day, roughly for two and a half hours that start around nine o'clock and end at 11 p.m. And so obviously for, you know, times seven, seven days a week, 28. And when you're on full, full time, you receive two shifts a week that you get off. So I was working essentially five days a week from nine in the morning until 11 at night. And then I was working two days a week from one in the afternoon until 11 at night. Roughly, that's 92 hours a week in the org working. And it's a lot of busy work. It's a lot of grueling work. You're also supposed to study at that time, but there's never enough time to study. So to me, when I think of Berlin, I think of just being there all the time, having no time to even clean my clothes, no time to eat properly. I, mean, I lost a lot of weight. I lost 70 pounds when I was there. I developed some serious side effects because of that, back problems, problems with lack of having lack of calcium in my diet and so forth. So I think of that. I think of the day-to-day -day schedule of just trying to keep up working this full, full-time schedule seven days a week with two mornings off. Those were what I chose, Saturday, uh, which was Friday morning and Saturday morning, which still meant I had a 10-hour had a shift. If not, by the way, there were other things that we had to do. We pulled all-nighters. There was something called Night Watch, which was a 10-hour shift afterwards, which we never got extra pay for. So that's really what I think. I think of, of the gruelingness of not just myself, but a couple dozen other mainly young, under 25, and also their teenage years staff members who were doing this full, full-time schedule for next to no money. And again, ha having it affect my health later as I was off of that. So that really is is the, the one thing that is always with me. And it's always like, uh, 
I don't even, I can't rationalize it even to this day. I don't know why I worked that schedule. But then again, I believe that I really was doing something special. And when they presented it with me, I thought, okay, maybe I would just do this temporarily. And of course, as we know, sometimes when you think of that, you're going to do it temporarily. It just kind of drags on and on and on to a point where several months later, and now several 15 years later, I still can't come up with the words on why I did that schedule. I don't even understand it myself. So that to me is the biggest thing that I took away. There's many other things, of course, but that was the biggest thing that I took away from that experience that I can recall at the moment, you know. So when you're saying next to nothing in terms of pay, what do you remember getting paid? Well, the highest I ever got paid And this happened on two different weeks, once in the summer and once closer to December. So I got paid 86 euros, and that was the highest I ever got paid. And the lowest I ever got paid also happened twice, which was 11 euros. And I do remember in December of 2005, there's something called the Bookathon around Christmas, where the staff members go set up tables to sell Dianetics books in public areas. And I worked a 115 hour work week and I was paid 11 euros. So that comes out roughly to eight cents an hour. And that was grueling. That most of that whole shift, that whole week was standing. You know, we don't get regular breaks or sitting. I mean, of course, we got 45 minutes for lunch and dinner, but really the, you know, 98% of that 115 hour work week was standing in the cold trying to sell people books. And that was the lowest point, I think, of my life period was receiving that 11 euros, which I was also in the area of the org that dispersed the money. And someone gave me that money, which was just, you know, two five notes and, and, a, and a coin. And I just remember kind of looking at it and thinking, like, I felt completely worthless. Like, I felt it was an unbelievable, very depressing feeling of just feeling helpless, feeling very depressed, feeling very lonely as well because of this being away from home, but feeling very worthless that I had not contributed and it, to Scientology, it wasn't about me. It was about the higher group. And so I just, I felt honestly ashamed of myself. And there was a lot of feedback, negative thinking that was going on. But inside of me, I just felt, I felt completely worthless. And again, eight cents an hour, that's something that, you know, in certain countries that children make in factories. I mean, it's really, it's really disgusting. And I was a 20 something year old, 24 year old man in Berlin, Germany, doing these things for this organization, making that much money. And it was a range again, between 11 and 86 euros. And on average, maybe 20 to 25 euros a week was our average. And certainly that's only, you know, that's less than a euro again. That's less than 50 cents an hour. It's those kinds of things that really, for many, many years, and thankfully I'm starting to come out of it now in, in a very slow way. But I really, I really took a lot out of me and it took a lot out of my self esteem. And it took a lot of also how I see others as far as trust and, and so forth. So I'm trying to mend that now within the past few years. But it was a very, very traumatic incident, of course, um, giving all of that for literally for next to nothing, if not for nothing. Right. right. Okay, so let's dive into this for a moment because there's something very interesting about the psychology in this. 
as you know, now that you're realizing that your response is that you looked inward. And that is something that is for people not in those situations, they might not understand why you weren't angry at them, why you didn't get mad and resentful about being completely taken advantage of, about being labor trafficked, about slave labor, about all of it that now, you know, has terminology connected to it that's legally recognized, thank goodness, and that you're out in the cold. They didn't care about you and your comfort. You may have already been having back pain at that point, but who knows anyway, whatever, they didn't care. And you were out there uh, to make a profit for them. And then they gave you nothing, really, nothing that not, no way to live on that kind of money or take care of your back pain or get good food that's healthy. But you felt worthless as opposed to thinking that they were seeing you as worthless and treating you as worthless, which was really wrong of them because you were a cog in the wheel. You're in the you're in their machine. You're helping keep the machine Boiled for them, and they should be grateful. And here you were devoting so many hours and showing so much devotion, but still looking down on yourself. So let's look at that. What was that about? Was that a way that you were trained to think about it while you were in the group? What do you think? Definitely. I grew up with self esteem issues. We, my mom really, she was a teacher, so she really tried to help me. I never had, again, I mentioned before, I really had trouble making friends when I was, when I was small and when I was growing up. So that was always kind of there. However, it definitely was turned up to 11, you know, when I was in Scientology, because what you are trained is essentially something that I think is very toxic also when it comes to politics, which is that this hyper sense of individualism, which means you are responsible for everything. You make your choices. There's no outside cultural, sociological influence. It's just you. And so you wake up in the morning. You're the one who makes the choices. It's all individual. And if something goes wrong, it's always on you. Now, of course, there's some truth to that. However, there are these things that are out there, psychologically, sociologically, whatever, that are also happening. That we do not have control over. So yes, it is. We can make our own personal decisions, but there's other things going on. In Scientology, they, as an organization, are basically like a puppeteer in one sense, and you are being controlled in that way. But whatever move they want you to make, if it ends up in a negative connotation, it's your fault. It's not Scientology's fault. One of the things that I really want to stress is that this is systemic. This is in their doctrine called Keeping Scientology Working One, which is a document that you read, which basically says that Scientology works 100% of the time as long as it's applied 100% correctly. And when it's not applied 100% correctly, it's because of someone else who's trying to hold you back. So Scientology works. So we're all, that's what we're focused on. I was indoctrinated into this idea that Scientology worked, we were doing good, and I just had to keep doing it, and eventually I would get to some endpoint, I guess. And so that really is something that is, again, it's incredibly toxic, but it's drilled into our heads every single day. I mean, how many times I heard the phrase, the tech works, or Scientology works every day. It was more than a mantra. 
I mean, it was repeated over and over beyond a mantra, like beyond, you know, a prayer, beyond a saying that somebody has or a, or a proverb. It was just something that consumed our thoughts. And so if I'm out there and I go to the org after 115 hours and I get 11 euros, that's my fault because I didn't sell enough books and because, you know, I didn't talk to enough people who spoke English because I didn't speak much German. So I was thinking to myself, okay, well, when this, you know, this person walked by and I heard them speak English, maybe I should have gone over there. They sort of enforced that negative regret of the things you should have done. And then they point it back to you. So they have, they think that they have no responsibility over the environment that they're creating, because if it leads to some kind of negative end result, that is you, that's not them. And I would say in this case, that external force, that organization, they're the puppeteers. And so it's really, again, maybe it's not the best metaphor, but it's certainly one that I think is at least a good symbol. Um, so if you do something bad, it's only up to you. It's not because of Scientology. And so again, the 11 euros... I should have made more. I could have made more. What were the things I didn't do? Um, I wasn't applying the tech. Everybody wants to buy a book. You go through these drills on how uh, with another staff member in order to get your TRs in because that's probably what's wrong. Or maybe there's a suppressive person in your environment. Again, I can go down a whole list, but essentially my fault. So I feel worthless because of, of what I'm getting from the organization. And so then I felt very depressed and very let down on my own self, not on them. Right. Right. Just say, oh, oh, just think about, you know, how much they get away with because of this. And I think about the person who hands you these two notes and a coin. And I feel like that's not something my conscience would let me do after someone has spent the day in the cold outside, but I could hand them next to nothing and be okay with it. But I know that person is also part of the system thinking this all makes sense and it's okay. The other thing that, you know, you mentioned is like how many falsehoods you needed to take on as truths that at the end of the day, we're just going to have you blame yourself. Like that thing you mentioned just for a second, which was everyone wants to buy a book so no, they don't, but you don't know that at the time. Very few people want to buy these books, but if you think everyone does, so it's up to you to just sort of unlock that, to get them to do the thing that they're wanting to do anyway, then why are you failing if everyone wants to be doing this? Uh, it's so interesting how many things you had rummaging around in your mind as truisms that just weren't that wound you up in this emotional state. I can also add, because there are different positions in the organization, I was in the what's called the division of the treasury division. So when you talk about giving people their staff pay, which usually happens on Thursdays, there's a whole thing about Thursday at two o'clock and so forth. Yeah. So I, I had that position for a long time. And it also kind of makes me very like I don't mind talking about it but it is something that gets to me because many many times throughout those nine months I had to disperse the pay and I can't tell you how many times I gave people their staff pay and they were angry and people cried 
and people through fits um, because there's a reporting of what's called statistics and somebody is expecting a certain amount of money because they've reported that they've actually done good that week and they're thinking, oh, I can get a little bit more money to do something. And then I'm the person who gives them 10 euros or even 20 euros, whatever it is. And that person would break down. I mean, and for me, I'm supposed to be, you know, the Vulcan, if you're a Star Trek fan, no emotion, just I'm giving you your cash, get out of my office. I don't want to see you cry. I don't want to listen to what we call in Scientology, human emotional reaction, H-E-R. Don't give me that. You push all of that emotion that you're supposed to be feeling, compassion, empathy, whatever, and you push it and you make it into anger and you make it into frustration and you project it onto that person who's crying in front of you or who's like screaming in front of you or who's who's throwing things in front of you. I mean, we had many staff members who would throw stuff when they would get staff pay that they didn't think was supposed to be theirs. We had people break things. I mean, the anger, the frustration, the very animalistic reactions that people have that I've never seen before. And thank God I've never seen since because it just goes beyond what, you know, and I get the condition that they're in, but it was very, very yeah, disconcerting, very disillusioning, very hard to watch and to be no emotions, having my TRs in. It's not my fault. I'm just, you know, I was, just, I'm doing what I was ordered. This is what the staff pay is. This is your name. This is how the amount I'm just giving it to you have a problem. You go to your, you know, supervisor, you go to your whatever. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to take in your, your pain, right? I want to deflect it. And I just, I'm just doing my job. And that was another thing that again, took a long time, a lot to get over because, you know, I, after Scientology became a, to be a very, very cynical, very rough edge type person. And again, I'm trying to get out of that slowly now, but. That was, that was why, because I would see these people breaking down and I was supposed to not have any compassion or empathy or caringness or, or heart, you know, of, of fulfillment to them. I was supposed to be stoic. I was supposed to be like the Vulcan and just was always projecting outward, outward, outward. And I would tell people like, yeah, I, I was, you know, would snap at people sometimes because this went on week after week after week. And eventually, yeah, I snapped a couple of times, opened the door, screamed at the top of my lungs, get the F out of this office. We don't want your negative negativity in here. You're giving us theta. you know, you've got human emotional reaction and just that reaction really surprised me because again i grew up with a family and we were very compassionate people i have holocaust victims in my family i have holocaust survivors in my family my entire family were refugees we were we're always growing up to be very liberal and very tolerant of different people's cultures religions languages whatever and you know my grandfathers went through a lot during the war and 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 my grandmothers went through a lot and you know my father they came from hungary they walked on foot you know so like i always considered myself to be Someone who had that kind of compassion, always interested in other people and their stories. And yet, seeing these people react this way, which under that circumstances is a way people should be reacting, but I'm projecting it outward because I don't want it to disrupt you know, my theta. I don't want it to interbulate my theta, which is, of course, a Scientology thing. 
and pushing it outwards and getting very cynical and very angry and very visceral. And uh, that was very surprising that I was getting to that level I, to myself. I didn't know that I could be that person. And unfortunately, those were some of those things that eventually I look back now and I think, yeah, that was completely unhealthy. And as I've gotten out of that situation, thankfully, I, I've gotten back to where I was before. <laughs> and uh, I'm thankful for that, you know? Yeah. There's so many people who will, you know, talk about their time in a particular cultic group. And the thing that gets them is how they were motivated to behave with other people. That they recruited people or they were heartless or they would sometimes lie to them or knowingly lie or hold information back um, and omit important pieces of information. And so when you have a conscience and when that's not your nature, it comes back to bite you emotionally, you know, even though it was how you were supposed to behave, it probably also made it easier in the moment to adopt that coldness and to do that also that you felt that that was the ideal. It's very interesting to have human emotional reaction be something that is looked down upon as a weakness because we are human beings, but not in in a way that feels like this idealized sense of how you're supposed to be in Scientology. That is a weak state. Human uh, emotional reaction, though, is the thing that lets people know that something that is happening to them is wrong. And so there is a part, of course, that, you know, L. Ron Hubbard didn't want to have to deal with any of that. And so he could make it all seem like it's, you know, that's, again, a weakness and it's a waste of energy and whatever, and let's not pay attention to it. Worked with a number of people who got involved in Scientology later or who were raised in it or raised it uh, even at a young age, and maybe not even since birth, but they have said they need help forming a compassionate stance towards other people and towards their emotions and also being willing to deal with other people's emotions as opposed to just saying, I don't want to have to deal like with that very tough exterior. This isn't something I have to care about. I think the way L. Ron Hubbard moved through through the world, I want to do a lot of damage to people and not have to worry about any of it and have to feel anything about it or feel bad about it in any way. I feel like it's adopting his world stance. I think the biggest thing is in Scientology, everyone is trying to be like Ron, but Ron was not like Ron. Ron was a he was a charlatan and a facade. One of the things that they do first is they you learn those TRs, the training routines, and that definitely cuts down any emotion. There's one called training routine called bull baiting. I, I'm sure I know you know it, Rachel, but bull baiting is when somebody sits in front of you and la- and and will literally say obscenely racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, disgusting, derogatory terms to a person. And all you're supposed to do is stand and confront them and say, yes, thank you. Okay, good. Yes, I hear you. Thank you. Okay. It And the things that come out of staff members' mouths are unbelievable. The things that I heard, again, growing up in Canada, yeah, like the United States, there are words you don't say. I mean, there are, and that's a historical context. It's not just from one particular group of many particular groups. There are just terms we don't use, we don't say. And those terms in those bull baiting sessions was just like somebody saying, hello, how are you? Like, it was used so liberally 
in such a horrific way. And you're not supposed to react and say, hey, like, that is a terrible, disgusting word. Or don't call me that. Being, you know, someone who has Jewish family, the horrible anti-Semitic stuff that people would say and the names that they would call me. And I'm just supposed to stand like this. And they knew my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. So they'd go along with that. And these are German people and Swiss people saying these things. It was absolutely ruthlessly disgusting. And again, if I were to react, I'd get in trouble. Not them, me. So it was something where you just bury everything and you just keep everything kind of yourself and you just, you just have laser focus and absolutely abusive and disgusting. It's so awful. Right. And I think then I, I think people don't realize they're being conditioned to being mistreated and they're being conditioned to being mistreated in Scientology. And again, for L. Ron Hubbard and now David Miscavige to be able to do horrible things and say horrible things. and it's on you to not react to it, which is like the, the, the sadist's playground. You know, I want to do whatever I want to do and I want you to be fine with it. And I don't even care if you're actually fine. I just want you to pretend you're fine. So I don't have to deal with you. It's so awful. What I'm wondering though, and uh, you know, this might be a way of sort of searching for a silver lining here that when you handed people much less than they were expecting to make and they had a reaction to it one hopes that that caused them to have a what the hell moment and be upset and and if that happened enough that maybe that was the impetus for them to really look at this and maybe leave right because you're disappointing people pissing them off (laughs) Uh, making them feel worthless also, making them feel like they were being seen as worthless and and that this was a waste and uh, they're not getting what they deserved. And maybe the more that happened made it easier for them to decide to go. I agree with you because the number one reason why people leave staff is because of the money. And you don't leave staff unless you're getting paid next to nothing. And so there were lots of staff members like about a hundred staff members that had left within the first year. I was on a project to gather this information for the org, how many people had left staff and how many people had left the, what we call the Div 6 course room. So the introductory courses, and it was almost 200 people in total. So definitely when people come in and they're promised the world and they work a shift for a week or two or something, and you give them their staff pay and they look at it and they say, I can't live off this. And people that are not heavily indoctrinated in Scientology, they leave. And that did happen quite often. So you're absolutely correct. There, There is always a silver lining. I know it can be hard to find many times, but in that case, money is not only the reason why Scientology exists, but it's also the reason why people leave because it's either too much money or you're not getting enough money. But it all all revolves around money, uh, which is not, you know, not what a spiritual, constructive spiritual group, healthy spiritual group of religion should really be focusing on. You know, because again, yes, synagogues and churches need to pay for their bills, but that's not why they're there and so forth. So I really think that you're right. It's one of these things where because it all is surrounded by money, it's their greatest asset because they have a lot of it. But then they can't reconcile the fact that the bridge costs half a million and they don't pay their staff and the Sea Org members anything. And they can't reconcile that at all. So people do leave because of that reason. 
So just briefly, if you can talk and then I want to hear more about your particular story and you leaving, et cetera. And you just said the bridge cost half a million. So one of the things I remember hearing years ago, and I have this cassette. I don't know. I got it from my dad. I have a cassette and I had to get a Walkman, which is not easy to get so I could hear it. (laughs) But anyway, I have this cassette of L. Ron Hubbard speaking. And he's talking about, and he has a very strange speech pattern. It's very interesting to him because he doesn't sound quote unquote normal, whatever that means. But yeah, he was out there. But he was talking about basically the message is if you want to enslave people, you need to promise them total freedom, which is very interesting, right? And then, right, is so in a very shockingly transparent way, which he's been many times, he now has this thing called the bridge to total freedom, which is the bridge to enslavement, right? According to the way he talks about it. So the bridge to total freedom, right, are all these courses. And so if you can describe what you mean by the bridge, it costs a half a million. And knowing also people on staff are making pennies an hour. I don't know how they pay for this. And the whole freeloader debt thing that we, oh, that drives me nuts. Drives me nuts that people have are called freeloaders if they leave and they need to pay up. It's oh, more about the whole financial stuff. Go ahead. Basically, when you sign a staff contract, you either sign a two and a half year contract or a five year contract. Most people, by the way, you can't just leave after that. You have to go through what's called a routing process. It's a whole thing. That's a whole other thing. So when you join staff, you usually join like myself. I don't come from an affluent family. I didn't, I'm not independently wealthy. I can't afford usually more than, you know, a few hundred bucks for a course. So what you do is you're supposed to do what's called uh, exchange, okay? The, the the they call it like the process of exchange, something like this. So you are supposed to get a two and a half hours of study a day. That means one of the shifts that you essentially are working. They're in two and a half hour blocks. One of them you would be in the course room. The catch is though that every course that you take, every auditing step that you do, everything that you do, either in the course room or in an auditing room, you are being charged for that. So if you break your staff contract, then you have to pay what they call a freeloader debt. You've basically been using the church. So it's this weird like mistrust that's already rooted in the first day that you're there that they don't really trust you. Basically think that you're in it either to make money, which you can't do, or to get free Scientology services. So if something happens and you have to break your contract after six months, a year, two years, whatever then you owe whatever that is. So my freeloader bill is somewhere between five and $6,000. And I was presented with this when I left San Francisco because I had a, done a number of courses, including the staff training courses, which is called Staff Status Zero, One, and Two. Plus I completed, and actually didn't even complete, I started a specific job course, which they call a hat hatting course, and a couple of other things, including the fact that I had a form of word clearing that's done on the e-meter, and I also had sec checking. So even the sec checking, which you don't have any choice but to do, you are charged per hour. You're charged per hour, and it's about 250 bucks an hour. 
so when you when you go go into Scientology, you have a case and you have a case supervisor, and the case supervisor will say to you, like I said, in my case, this person needs method one word clearing and they need sec checks. You don't have any choice. You go and do them, and then you realize later that they are put onto your freeloader bill. So that's how I, after I guess four courses or five courses and probably five hours of combined word clearing and sec checking. I got five to six grand American dollars for my freeloader bill. However, the Sea Org is also part of this. And someone can be in the Sea Org member, you know, for their whole life. And they can, they can in some cases get all the way up to those high OT levels, which again, I'll sort of explain the bridge in a moment, but they can get to the highest levels and they could have six figure freeloader debts because of everything that's accumulated over, let's say, if they've been in for 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. So if they break their contract, the idea is you are a piece of garbage and you were only in it for the free service and basically they don't trust you. And so what people, what I think the viewers and the listeners should know too, is that Scientology has this massive chart, which they call the Great Charter, the Bridge of Total Freedom. And it's basically kind of, it's a pyramid scheme, really, to, to put it you know bluntly. You start off at the bottom when things are very inexpensive. They're called life improvement courses, also known as Dick Six courses. It's self-help that L. Ron Hubbard took from Dale Carnegie and Joseph Campbell and Napoleon Hill and just sort of repackaged it as himself. And some of those things is where most people actually get their most benefit from Scientology is in those lower levels. And some of those courses can be destructive, of course. Some of them are just benign. They're very subjective. For me, I like to I like that the most, even though overall I would still consider it to be destructive because of where it leads. But then you get on to one side of the bridge, which is called processing, which means you're going through auditing, or the other side is training, which you're learning to become an auditor. And the processing side goes all the way to those esoteric OT levels where you basically learn what Scientology actually is. Now, you know, I go to synagogue every Friday, but if I ask my rabbi, what, who's Moses? What was Mount Sinai? What were, what were the Ten Commandments? He's going to tell me. I've had Muslim friends, Christian friends, Baha'i friends, Sikh friends. They love telling you what the tenets of the faith actually are. Because, you know, even if you're not going to convert, it's still a big part of people's life and a big part of our culture. And even if someone's a humanist or an atheist or whatever, they're, they're in that group. They love, they, people love it. People who crochet love to crochet. You know what I mean? It, it, people that have interests will, will allow people in. But in Scientology, they keep essentially what would be very important teachings to their own religion, so to speak, hidden in these higher levels. And those things cost a lot of money. So auditing, you are supposed to pay for two and a half hours, but then they have these intensives where you can pay for 12 two and a half hours, and that's called an intensive. And then there's supposedly a sliding scale, and they can go into tens of thousands. But by the time you get into OT5, which is done with an auditor, it's around five to $8,000 an hour. And the person's a Sea Org member, so they're not seeing any of that. It's not like a private practice thing. And again, even in a reputable therapist like yourself charging five or $6,000 an hour is quite more than what, you know, most psychologists and psychologists would. And you obviously have an ethical, an ethical association that you have standards to and, and so forth. They don't have that. There's no APA. There's no licensing bureau, nothing like this. 
So really what it is, is it, is it accumulates. And if you want to do the training side, which is the auditing side, you've got to buy an e-meter. And those e-meters cost anywhere from $5,000 to $20,000. And they're basically made from junk. Anyone could make it if you know a little bit about electronics. It's just a really expensive endeavor that you, you have to already have a lot of money to do. Or again, you join staff or the Sea Org. And the thing is, you break your contract. You got to pay. It's really, really, again, I'm going <laughs> to sadly repeat myself, but it's a very heinously, very deceptive way of getting people involved because they do not disclose only when you get to flag and only when you get mail from flag will they actually disclose the costs. For the most part, they play down the costs and they'll introduce a course to someone like myself for 50 bucks but they won't tell you the extra things that you need for that course. They won't tell you how much the book costs. They won't tell you how much the course pack costs. So when you go to Scientology, you're paying a course fee, and then you've got to pay for the actual materials. Well, they'll only tell you what the course charges. So it's 50 bucks for the course, then it might be 50 bucks for the materials, and then it might be another 20 or $50 for some other thing. So they're not going to tell you it's $120 or $150. They're going to say it's 50 And this just is in every level up to the mid-level, what are called grades and classes, all the way to the OT levels. It's the same thing. It's going to cost this amount of money. Oh, but then you need this material. You need that thing. You need another thing. And of course, sec checking and all these other things that you do. Case supervising costs money. The case supervisor doesn't just case supervise when you're doing professional auditing. They have a fee. It's really, really heinous. I mean, it's just these hidden costs. And this is how it gets up to half a million dollars. You can do the bridge in a very short period of time or it can take a long period of time. There's there's really no way to do it, but it's going to cost the same money in the end, which is at least 300000 500000 or more. Could be a million. Incredible. You know, they're having a lot of legal issues and they still are today, which I'm glad about because they've given a lot of other people legal issues just out of harassment that there would suddenly be this rule coming down the pike that you needed to redo a class because the material wasn't perfect or there was a word missing or it was a misprint. And the thing that you just spent so much on with all these hidden costs, you had to do again at your expense, even if it was their mistake. And I mean, all of this knowing too that they have tax exempt status and are considered a church, even though I think churches need to actually be watching over because you're right, they're the APA, other people are not, but also churches are not. Uh, my goodness, we could talk about so many things here. And I'm, I want to hear about how you left and you know what the impetus was for that, because usually that's a process that happens over time. And then there is a tipping point. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, February of 2008, I uh, was transferred from Berlin to San Francisco, started in San Francisco about a month later. And what had happened was my, what are called pre-clear folders. Remember that Scientology makes a lot of folders. They're very bureaucratic. And when you're going through auditing and so forth, there will be a file, a folder, file folder for you that contains your auditing sessions. So my folders that had been through Toronto, they were then in Berlin. They were courier to Berlin and Berlin had to courier them to San Francisco. And that pretty much took like two months. Okay. It was a long time. 
So when those folders, when my pre-clear folders came to the San Francisco org, there was a high-ranking gentleman who was a class eight senior case supervisor, and he did his CS foldering. And I had been actually having a couple of issues. I've been, when I came to San Francisco, I was arriving late a couple of times and um, I didn't really want to study too much because I really didn't, I really never liked studying very much in the academy, always much preferred the Div 6 course room. So I was going through a little issues, but I was also having some health issues and medical issues because of what was going on in Berlin. And so really what happened was I was put into these couple of security checks. And when I was a teenager, I heard about Scientology on television. I Googled Scientology. It led me to reading some critical stuff on Scientology. But this was in the late 90s. And by the time the mid-2000s were, I didn't have a perfect recollection of exactly what I saw or what I would have read. And so for this particular person, uh, this case supervisor, that was enough to essentially kick me off of staff. Like I was removed from staff and I was given a declare that I was not qualified to be a staff member. And that to me hurt me very much because I had just spent nine months in that grueling schedule being a staff member in Berlin. And the case supervisor in San Francisco said, you should not have even been a staff member. You were not qualified. There was a lot of things. And I guess they were so desperate that they were taking people from literally all over the world because they're so desperate to staff the, the Berlin org that they overlook these things. And so um, I flew from San Francisco to Los Angeles. I spent a few nights in Los Angeles, actually on L. Ron Hubbard Way in a boarding house. And a big crux of why I, I left was because I had my my leaving staff declaration, not not an SP declare, not a PTS declare, but on a goldenrod piece of paper and so forth. So it looked very similar. And I just wanted to get answers. And I wanted I wanted to talk to somebody on like, why are we working this full full-time schedule? Why? Like did somebody just give me some insight or again give me some compassion or whatever. Because when I left Berlin, you know, it was a it was a big thing and you know, never got a thank you, never got a, I'm glad you were here. Like it was really just, okay, you're gone, you're gone. Like they just shoot me off. So I wanted a conclusion. I wanted something. I didn't get it. And so the night before that I flew back to Toronto, I was just on L. Ron Hubbard Way. I think I was probably sitting on a bench or walking up and down L. Ron Hubbard Way. And I had a thought that came into my head. And the thought was, was all of this worth it? You know, was Scientology worth it? And I thought to myself, it, what was it? And I kept going down this list of like, well, I didn't talk to my family. I didn't talk to my friends. I put my education on hold. You know, I suffered with my health. I went back and forth through these international flights. Like, was it worth losing weight? Was it worth doing all these things? And I couldn't come up with any answer other than no, it wasn't. And so very thankfully, I left in my head, and that was on the 16th of May of 2008. So by the time I got back the day after, which is 17th of May, uh, I was out. And then, of course, after I left, I would say I went through about six months of internal issues with guilt and with survivor's guilt and with feeling really beat up on myself because that was, I think, my Scientology self essentially dying and having my own self come back and fighting this this 
fight with myself, with my subconscious or whatever. But eventually, as I said, I just couldn't find any good reason to continue. I felt used. I felt hurt. I felt betrayed. And I was very happy in one sense because I was feeling these things. And I knew that there was nothing that anyone in Scientology could say to deny those facts. And once I separated myself, you know, again, it took some time. I did have a lot of mood swings and, and a lot of frustration that came out of this. And again, a lot of crying episodes and stuff by feeling guilt. But after a certain amount of time, after a year went by, two years went by, then five, then 10, and now it's going to be 15 years. So, and every single year, at least in my case, I know maybe time doesn't heal all wounds, but certainly in my case, I can say that time has certainly allowed a lot of things to settle and to simmer. And again, I'm feeling, you know, more myself today at 40 than I did when I was 22 or 25. And I think that's, you know, the biggest silver lining that I have was leaving Scientology and, you know, getting back to who I was, which is a journey in life. We don't always know who we are, especially in our 20s. I think as I've gotten older, that has become more apparent to me. And really leaving Scientology, I always say, is the best decision I made was leaving and uh, I haven't looked back. So I've been very lucky in that way where I didn't have any family or really any friends. I mean, my friends just disconnected from me, but luckily I didn't have a family or a spouse that was in Scientology. And I really feel for people that do because I, 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 I you know, have compassion for those decisions because some people don't want to be out. They want to be offline, but still in, as you as you mentioned, Rachel, earlier. But I was lucky in that way that my family welcomed me back, my friends welcomed me back, and I started to open up little by little. And people were were compassionate. People understood, and people, you know, my mom, my my dad, who's passed away, he, you know, I had a couple of conversations with him because he had a friend who was in Scientology many years ago, and he told me that story, and my mom told me that story, and things kind of became a little bit more in context. And that really was, yeah, that was really a blessing. So I'm very thankful that I had that support, you know, going into Scientology and leaving Scientology as well. I mean, it's such a powerful story, and it's one that happens a lot in different ways. But, you know, this whole idea, too, of people being told that they broke their contract, you know, you're somehow you're held up to a standard that Scientology doesn't hold itself up to. I mean, it it breaks its own contracts all the time by not being honest and not being forthright and having hidden everything that you have to pay for. I think the fact that now you're in Budapest and and I heard you mention just even briefly about your family coming from there, your father's family coming from there. There is something I I think very powerful about getting reconnected with yourself, with your past, being grounded in history, knowing who you are, because getting involved in a group like Scientology can send you into some stratospheric place where you don't feel attached to the self. You might not really know how you fit into the world or into your own family or your own history that somehow, you know, you're not even quite attached to your own body and your own mind and your own emotions. And so I wonder for you, you know, because you made a a real effort to, I think, get grounded again and connected to yourself and to your past. What would you tell people who are listening who 
are either thinking about leaving or who have left, that has been helpful. And I know you said it's a work in progress, that there's still things that you're working on, but what has been helpful to think or to do that has helped you have some clarity and healing? For me, reading almost any subject that you can get your hands on. When I left, the first thing I did was I wanted to know what went on. And a lot of people will find answers and simple answers. So I read everything. I read stuff from philosophy, contemporary religious studies, philosophy of religion, like, you know, because it's very, it can be very, very hostile to religion when you leave. And that hate and that regret can build up. But I was lucky that I got an academic perspective. And then that led me into understanding and noticing the difference between a constructive group, a benign group, and a destructive group, and that not all religions are destructive. It's incredibly tragic when they are, because like in Scientology, they've taken people's faith and your trust, and they take your soul, and they rip it apart. But just knowing that there are wonderful churches, synagogues, mosques. I felt solace in going to Reform and Conservative synagogues, to the Unitarian Universalist Association. And again, there are constructive groups if you're not religious too. There are a lot of options out there for people, whether you're religious or not. But just in my case, just knowing that there are progressive, liberal, inclusive, and pluralistic religious people out there who will not shun you for being gay or trans or black or a minority or a marginalized community can really help people. And I'm really, really glad that I was able to see those, you know, go to those groups, make those connections. And then from there, it's also your journey. So when I'm saying help me in a subjective way, maybe not everything I'm saying will help you, but at least it helped me. So what I say is you're going to want to hold on to a lot of that anger. And your mind and your brain is going to have to make attachments to those anger. And sometimes you might then get swept up into toxic political thinking or toxic social thinking or whatever, or just being on the internet too long where you get into echo chambers. But bursting that open and just having a diverse set of opinions and perspectives and thinking, which can come from taking courses at a community college, which is usually much cheaper than at a at a, a four year. Just saying, hey, you know, why don't I just take a philosophy of religion course? Why don't I take a science course? Why don't I take a sociology course? Psychology. There is so so much out there, and I, I say that my worldview today, even though I'm very Jewish, is that I'm a pluralist, and I believe that there are many sources to the truth. There's not just one that everyone should be accepted from their perspectives, marginalized or not. Whomever you are, you have a voice. And you have to form that. And that's that's a part of life. You're not going to just wake up when you're 18 and be an adult. An adult is a process, much like it is for everyone else. And when you're discovering yourself, there might be predatory groups and individuals who will want to shape you into who they are. But taking a break from that and learning about the world is fantastic. So if it's available to you, I say, you know, multi-faith groups or social groups or whatever you can do that's in your community, social justice work, doing something where you're around people that's positive, 
and helps. And in a pluralistic sense, you're getting multiple perspectives. And in the end, you know, you're going to, you're going to take those multiple perspectives and you as a person, you are going to have your own personal experiences and to have multiple perspectives and multiple experiences opening yourself up. I think is wonderful. And I think that if more people could do that, at least when they're coming out of a cult, it might be able to prevent some of the echo chamber thinking, some of the frustrations, some of the regrets, some of the animosity that can fester. And by the way, it can be completely, you know, for good reason in some cases, but just letting go of some of that has been very helpful for me. So I've just read a lot of different stuff. And if something tickles my fancy, I'm at a bookstore, I'll pick it up. I'll, and I'll read and I'll, I'll try to get into it because I have also fallen for those echo chambers and it can be tough to get out of. But increasingly challenging yourself and educating yourself is, is just a wonderful, wonderful thing because there's, there's just a lot out there. There's so much knowledge in our world and it's really a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing. That's a great way to end our conversation. I'm so glad that you had that conversation with yourself on the bench on that street because that was a very important watershed moment emotionally and spiritually for you just to have that space and the quiet that you gave yourself in that moment to hear yourself. And now I'm glad you're having the conversation with us and helping to illuminate how this all happens and the after effects of it. And you've been through the ringer and, you know, I'm so sorry that you've been through what you've been through. And I'm very happy that you are where you are today. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you so much. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Mark for talking to us today. I really look forward to having you hear another conversation that I got to have with Mark that will be available for Patreon supporters for any amount. So go to patreon.com slash indoctrination so you can hear the next conversation that I have with him coming up soon. And I get to ask some follow-up questions from this particular interview, this episode. And it's just such a great conversation. And so please help yourself to all the bonus episodes. There are so many and they're really wonderful. And they go in some unexpected directions and sometimes get very personal. People really open up and you can learn a lot and support the show at the same time. So for today, I really enjoy talking to Mark. He is a really good guy and he's really smart and sensitive and has a good way of looking at this and has been out for a number of years so that he has been able to do a lot of reading and research and has that to share with us too. Some of the things that he has learned about what he went through and why he was having the after effects that he was having. Something that we're going to continue to talk about in the next conversation is really trying to understand more about the why, why you stay in these kinds of situations and why it happens and why you put up with things like this. One of the things that I find so telling about when people talk about Scientology, not unlike many other groups, even though I know Scientology would like to think of itself as far superior than other groups, but it's just like many others. They will tell you that what they are offering you is perfect. 
And they even say it. They don't couch it. They will say that your job is to do what they call keep Scientology working. Because, as they say, it works 100% of the time if you do it right. 100% of the time. So if anyone tells you that, that what they can provide for you is perfect and it will work 100% of the time if you do it right, not them, but if you do it right, I want you to find the exit door as quickly as you can and stop wasting your time. It would be like if I were to say to people that I will be able to cure you of everything if you come to me for counseling, if you do it right. That just makes sure that I have an out, that I can promise you something and I don't have to deliver because I am going to be able to blame you and also teach you to blame yourself if it doesn't work. I think it's unconscionable to make false promises like that and false statements like that. But they are no stranger to all of that of just saying whatever they want and having you shoulder the burden of it not being successful. One of the things that Mark talked about that I I have to mention again is this idea of H-E-R, her, human emotional reaction. Doesn't surprise me that it's her also because L. Ron Hubbard had a history of being a misogynist, but just this idea that human emotional reaction is something that you are supposed to be rid of through their help. And they will teach you to have no patience or sympathy. I remember talking to someone who was raised going to Scientology schools when he was young, and he remembers that when a child fell on the playground and got bruised or was bleeding or crying, that you were not supposed to go over to see what was wrong and how you can help or offer sympathy. That was weakening them in some way. They had to learn how to deal with these things. Imagine that as your world growing up, that no one comes to help, and that's for your benefit. But what are you teaching the other kids there about how to show that they care? Well, somehow that is a weakness, and you're making the other person weak by being a mensch, by showing that you have a conscience. The idea that emotions are weaknesses is very common within cultic groups. It's very common within large group awareness training that if you're sad about something, you're a victim and you're playing the victim card. But it could be that there is a reason we were all gifted and sometimes burdened with the realm of emotions that we have with a full spectrum of them. Some of them are very uncomfortable to have and some of them misguide us and have us behave in ways that are not great. Mm, Things like jealousy and anger. But sometimes when you're with someone or you're in a group that is telling you not to have all of your emotions and not to have your anger, not to have the more negative emotions, you want to wonder why that is. And is that for your benefit or for theirs? If you're also teaching people that they're not supposed to be angry about something that happens to them, or they're not supposed to be sad about things being taken away from them or people being taken away from them, that's usually for the group. That's so that you don't put up a fight and you don't resist when they are doing things to you that are really wrong and when they're robbing you of things that nobody should. And they don't want you to have a reaction to it. 
When you get into a group that also tells you that you need to be able to do this exactly as they tell you, and that if you do, then you'll have 100% success, but then you don't have 100% success, meaning you don't sell as many books as they want you to sell, or you don't bring in as many new members as they want. Success usually is success for the group. Then if you are left with thinking that you have failed the group and then you're putting yourself down, think about how much time you're spending working to berate yourself because you didn't do enough to give to a group that's already taking from you. It is a vicious cycle. And in that moment, I want you to be able to take a step away. And Mark talks about taking a step away for a time. And I want you to think without thinking that it's selfish, because a lot of groups will also tell you that even this question is a selfish one. What has this group done for me? I've given time, lots of it. And I've given money, sometimes lots of it. And I have volunteered and I've sacrificed and I've sacrificed my relationships and my schooling, my work. What am I getting for this? And if even asking that question is something that you are put down for, because again, it's seen as selfish, then that just makes sure that you will always endure having to give more and more without ever receiving and without ever being able to really look at it and to really act on it. It should be that when you give something to an organization, you can get something back. And not just the promise of getting something back if you do it right. It shouldn't be conditional, always based on you. There should be something you've already received. And if not, it's time to go because that's when they're taking advantage. I hope that everyone out there is able to stay clear of groups like this that will see you as a target, that will see you as something that will keep their machine well-oiled. But you are more than that, and your life means more than that. And it's okay for you to want something in return for all of your work and devotion. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.